congregation, I welcome you in the name of the Lord. It is good to be together, and it is a blessing to be with you. I would call your attention this morning to Romans chapter 15, please. Romans chapter 15. To try to give some shape to this, I've given it a, a title, Living and Loving After the Manner of Christ. It, call it artistic license. It, sometimes they're helpful. But that's the direction I'm trying to go this morning. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In Psalm 133, verse one, we read this beautiful admonition. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Sounds a little idealistic. Contrasted with our experience, but perhaps, but isn't that really the goal for us as a congregation specifically? But Christians at large, our Lord has always been concerned that his people be like minded. We find this uh, presented to us throughout the New Testament in particular. This is, of course, having the mind of Christ, such as we read in Philippians 2, 5, where Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we also see this exampled in Jeremiah 32, 38 and 39, the prophecy that this would be the reality of God's people and which it is and which the Holy Spirit now enables in us. We are able to have this kind of peace that we are called to in Scripture because of the Holy Spirit, which, among other things that he accomplishes for us, enables us to live as God commands us to. And isn't that an interesting feature of the faith, you might say, that the very things that God expects of us, the very things that he calls us to, high as that holy standard is, is not only possible, but joyful. When done, according to the enabling Holy Spirit. In our text today, we read of this kind of godly unity among both strong and weak Christians, which is what we really have in view here. Look, we're all at different stages in our Christian walk, some more mature than others. And it isn't so much the point of who's more mature than another. As we noted, even in our class this morning, we are indeed works in progress in Christ, aren't we? And so those who are stronger, those who are more mature, are to bear with those who are less strong or weaker, being patient with one another as the Lord is with us. 
Notice verse one, a giving of ourselves. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Well, referring to Galatians 6, 1, this word strong can also be rendered as spiritual. And 1 Corinthians 10, 15 also uses the word as sensible. And in Colossians 1, 9, it gives a bit more color to this. Where it says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, sometimes Greek words can be translated many ways. And we see sometimes by examining various passages, a fuller picture of what's trying to be communicated to us. And so what Paul is praying for there in Colossians 1.9 is is this knowledge of God's will in wisdom and understanding and not just some shapeless, warm and fuzzy. There's a maturity here in thinking, a clarity of thinking, a spirituality of thinking that we're thinking wisely and biblically rather than just by, well, folksy, good old boyisms. Let a smile be your umbrella, keep a stiff upper lip and that sort of thinking which isn't very useful. It appears then that what the strong or spiritual or sensible people that Paul's talking about here are those who have learned and developed a fear of the Lord, such as we see in Proverbs. We read in Proverbs first chapter. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And later we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom Knowledge being what we know and wisdom want to do with it. Well, in this case, this fear of the Lord is sometimes more accurately for us rendered as a holy reverence. That it not need be a cowering fear before the Lord, because we who are in Christ, who have a care, understand he is our heavenly father. And there's that warmth of relationship that we have with him, which as a child is to fear their father. Not in the sense of cowering in the corner for what dad might do to him, but instead respecting him for the position God has placed him in. Well, in similar fashion, we have this holy fear of our God, realizing that he is infinitely greater than we are. And apart from him, we have nothing. Well, Paul alludes to this in Second Timothy four or five, when he charges Timothy to be sober minded in his thinking, and as Peter does in 1 Peter 1.13. We'll take a brief look at that, 1 Peter 1.13. There are a couple of verses here in this, in this uh, short uh, letter. 1 Peter 1.13 tells us, Therefore, we get a lot of that in the New Testament. It's really calling us to back up a little bit and see what's been said before, much as even in our own text in Romans, but there just simply isn't time. First Peter one thirteen. therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then we see in four, seven, same letter. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. And finally, five, eight, be sober minded. Be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How is it that you suppose that our thinking is to be sober minded, but that we are well grounded in God's word? Pithy, folksy sayings are insufficient in a moment of trauma, stress, loss. Should I say despair? We need the Lord Christ in such moments then as much as ever. And we need to have that security that we find in God's word and not just in human wisdom. Right. We must be well grounded in the word. Every generation must reaffirm its its resolve, its conviction in the sufficiency of scripture. God's word is the absolute word. It cannot fail for its author. God himself cannot fail. It is as perfect as the God who spoke it. And whose spirit inspired it to be written. Every word trustworthy and true. No ifs, ands, or buts. When we read it, we can find our ultimate comfort in it because it is the very word of God himself. And so to be sober-minded, spiritually speaking, is for us to look to the rock-solid word of God. And find our comfort, find our, our reason for being. To think spiritually. I believe this relates directly to our level of confidence in God's word and so how seriously we take it to be sober minded. Martin Calvin Hovind has said this, it wasn't for lack of evidence that that the disciples doubted. It was because they forgot the words of Jesus. We must be consciously calling the word of God to mind and applying it to our current circumstances. I'm not talking about proof texting either or trying to pick out the error in what somebody is saying so that we can kind of just, you know, up the backside of their head with a verse. What I'm talking about is finding the finding the basis for our confidence, for our assurance. Oh, wait, so I don't get ahead of myself. MacArthur says this, the idea is that of showing genuine, loving and practical consideration for other believers we're not to argue about minor issues. The injunction is for mature believers to voluntarily and lovingly refrain from exercising their liberty in ways that might needlessly offend the consciences of less mature brothers in Christ, those who are weak. Can does not equal should. Just because we can say something does not mean that we should. There's a time and a place for everything, isn't there? Sometimes less is more. We must be careful. Just because we know something doesn't mean we need to unload it on another person. There's a time. When we think this way, this reverence towards God, this love for God, we're going to love his people faithfully and believingly towards his word and seriously about our calling to glorify him in all that we do. It is then that we're in a position to joyfully and obediently bear with Others while denying ourselves. Notice Colossians chapter 3. We're speaking this morning in class also about the, the tangible differences once one comes to saving faith in Christ. Is there a difference? Absolutely, there's a difference. And it's not because of us. No, we, just, we just changed our mind and decided, I'm going to live differently today. But rather, this is the spirit that works in us. To be different, to desire differently, to 
to think, to speak, to act, to live, to value differently. It's all the work of God within us to change us, to make us more after the image of Christ. And we see example of that noted right here. Colossians chapter three, the whole chapter. But specifically, we're going to drill down to verses 12 through 14 in light of our position in Christ. In response to that, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. It seems wrong to stop. Keep reading. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus or according to it, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that's how we're to behave together, dear congregation. To regard each other the way Christ regards us. Adopted children in God's family. No one better than another. The weaker Christian is not a lesser Christian, but a less developed one. And so we are patient with each other. God doesn't beat us down because because we're biblically ignorant, but he's patient and kind. He's given us the same word. He's given us the same spirit that the most mature believer among us has. And so we bear with one another and we forgive each other in the same way that Christ did with us. Verse two, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. Luke ten twenty nine records the, the lawyer's infamous question. And who is my neighbor? And Dr. Luke records the man's attitude as desiring to justify himself, which tells us that was an inappropriate question. Jesus parable defined the answer is this. Anyone. Who's my neighbor? Anyone. The New Testament is is filled with exhortations to love one another. And while we see that we're to exhibit a love for all people, we are to demonstrate a particular love for fellow believers. Notice here are a few for us. It's good to see them so that we see consistency in teaching. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, obviously, people cannot see our feelings. They see the result of our feelings, right? So we have to demonstrate this love. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In this way, God demonstrated our lo- his love for us and then fills in the blank. So we, too, may have warm affections for one another. And in Christ, we should. We should. 
If, in, in fact, we are in Christ, that is, we have been given the mind of Christ. The same spirit. And so we're to love one another in the same way that God loves us. It's inconsistent to call ourselves a Christ follower and yet refuse to love his people. And so we have warm affections for one another that must be demonstrated. Chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment. He's commanding us. That you love one another as I have loved you. Elsewhere, we read Jesus saying this. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If A, then B. If A, you love me, then B, you will obey my commands. If A, you flip up the switch, B, the light comes on. In the same way, if you truly love Christ, the proof is going to be in your obedience to him. It'll be an imperfect obedience. We're still in the flesh. We're not in glory yet, but we will be characterized by a desire to be obedient to the Lord Christ. When we call Jesus Lord, we're calling him king. And when the king speaks, the people snap to attention and do as he directs. That's what we do. And ours is a perfect king. Everything he calls us to is good and right. Back in Romans, we'll notice in chapter 12, verse 10. Well, let's start in verse nine. Let love be genuine. How again can that, that, that genuineness of love be known, but other than by demonstration? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's kind of old fashioned language. You don't hear it much, but I like the sound of it. Talk about our affections for one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's marvelous. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Chapter 6, verse 10 in Galatians. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. Love keeps no record of wrongs. When we forgive, we forfeit the right to bring it up again. Otherwise, forgiveness has not happened. We understand, for example, here's an idea of how God's attributes can be incredibly encouraging to us. We understand God to be omniscient. He knows everything fully. Nothing held back. He knows it all. So he technically can't forget anything or he wouldn't be God. And yet we're told in the Psalms that for the believer, God casts 
our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's a decision on God's part that he's no longer going to hold those things against us. And why not? Because we understand that in the atonement, which means covering the blood of the Christ. Who lived a perfect life, having kept God's law, having surrendered his own life on the cross and having having taken it back up again three days later. For our justification. Has put an end to our sin, past, present and future. God looks at you, dear believer, and he's deeply pleased because he sees the perfection, the glory and the beauty of his own son. And he's not angry at us anymore. That should be incredibly encouraging for you to assuage those fears that we have when we have guilt feelings over our sin. What do we do with our guilt? We all have it. The question isn't, are you guilty or do you have any guilt? It's what do you do with it? None but the believer has hope. They may try to bury it for a season, but it's always there nipping at their heels. But for us, Christ is the answer for all of that. He's put an end to it. And so, we then see First Peter 4.8. tells us above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins and then first john 3:18 little children let now that's not a patronizing thing john is doing there this is actually we'd call a term of endearment he's He's, boy, it's like he's talking to family. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then in four, well, well-known verses here, beginning in verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Amen. Now, propitiation, there's a 50 cent word. What's it mean? Quite simply, this word means a satisfaction of wrath. Christ's death uniquely satisfied God's fury over sin, which is why God's no longer angry with us. Had anyone else died for us, that wouldn't have propitiated God's wrath. God is angry towards sin. That's why there's hell. But for the believer, dear believer, God has propitiated your sin through Christ. He's no longer angry at us. He's satisfied. He also expiated for our sin, which means he canceled our sin debt. There's nothing left for us to do. Except to be thankful. And much as with love, this thankfulness is demonstrated in how we live for the Lord. We cannot add to it and we cannot take away. 
in a sense, we'd sort of cheapen the work of Christ when we attempt to add to it. I must do this. I must do that to be pleasing to God. When in fact, no, you can't. And no, you won't. Jesus paid it all. We sing. And it's true. We also notice that pleasing and building up of our neighbors is done through our speech. What we say. Notice Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then 5.4. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul makes clear in principle here what should and should not proceed from our mouths. Characteristically, James cuts right to the chase. James 3, 9 and 10. He's not terribly interested in whether we like what he has to say, but we generally need to hear it. James 3, 9 and 10. Speaking about the tongue, this tiny, reckless instrument. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's what we call road rage. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. From the condition of our heart, we'll proceed The true fruit of our being. Are we in Christ or not? Inasmuch as the blessed man of Psalm 1 daily devotes himself to the veritable feast of God's word. It's small wonder that the same word would be used to build up one another deliberately and purposefully. And isn't that really what we what we attempt to do, at least in part, each Lord's Day when we come together? Why sit through Sunday school? Couldn't we just sit at home or in our cars and listen to a well-known preacher on there and still benefit? Well, of course we could. That's why they're doing it. But there's something marvelous about coming together. God, in his wisdom, once again, knew the best way for us. He designed believers for community. And so we come together. And, in fact, he cautions us not to abandon that. You'll recall in Hebrews Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, we're told. But instead, build up one another to love and good works, especially as the day of the Lord draws near. We need each other. We sometimes may not like each other. That's let's be honest. We're people. We we have our mind made up. We like what we like and don't like what we don't like. And if we don't like what you have to say, well, we know how we get. 
but we're to love one another and love love covers a multitude of sin. And so certainly it can also cover a multitude of disagreement. It's okay to have some different ideas here and there. We're still called together as a church family, which looks and acts an awful lot like a human family, doesn't it? Well, I don't like what she said, so I'm not going. I'll show them. And all we're doing is we're, we're, we're really stealing from one another. Did you know? I'm starving my spirit by not going and fellowshipping with the brothers, and I'm stealing from them by not sharing my spiritual gifting with them. We know our gifts are not for us, but for others, right? And when we don't go and fellowship with the gathered church, we are not contributing that spiritual gifting as we are to do. It's important that we meet together. Notice verse 3. For Christ, or he's giving the reason now why he said in verse 2, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, in Philippians 2.1, the exhortation to others' mindedness is motivated by the example of Jesus himself, who denied himself, his heavenly prerogatives through humility when he came to earth in the flesh. He remained God. There's truly a mystery, isn't it? That, that this man, Jesus Christ, could be truly God and yet truly man. The only one who's ever done it. How he, can, how he can still be God and yet in the flesh not know everything. He gives indications here and there that that's the case by saying that the father knows the time and the seasons when the son is to return. But the son doesn't know. But there's much that he did know. Well, he denied himself his heavenly prerogatives that he enjoyed at the Father's right hand by coming to earth. And in so doing, both Jesus and we glorify the Father and we rejoice. We understand this in here where he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you, that's a reference to God the Father, fell on me. I and the Father are one, he said. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. That willingness to please the Lord, despite misunderstanding, ridicule, slander, deprivation, persecution, and even death, should characterize every believer. It characterizes every believer whose life is conformed to Christ and who desires to please another brother. This willingness to deny ourselves Yes, we have great freedom in Christ. That freedom gives us the, the responsibility to deny ourselves when it betters a fellow brother or sister. Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The Bible truly brings many promises and encouragements to God's people. Equally significantly, it provides us much instruction for what to believe, how to practice it, and what's pleasing and acceptable to God. You'll recall 2 Timothy 3.16 describing the sufficiency of the word by telling us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness 
that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You see, we don't have to come to church and speculate about what something something means. or We don't have to speculate about what we what we should believe. Well, I just think we should we should do this or I just think we should do that. Well, there's no need for any of that silliness because the word of God is sufficient. It's enough to tell us what to believe and what to let alone. We're told that the secret things belong to God, but the rest are for us. And we are responsible for what God has given us. And so we do well when we labor over the scriptures to do the hard work of study. Study to show yourself approved. A workman in King James speech that needeth not to be ashamed. So always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Well, what do we believe about? Well, can somebody lose their salvation? Well, what does the Bible say? Let's think seriously about these things. It speaks clearly, you know. Well, what do we believe about about how somebody is saved? They have to do something. Well, what does the Bible say? We're talking about spiritual matters about Christ. Well, this is the book of, by, and about Christ. And so we look to this alone. We need not speculate. It's not helpful anyway. <clears throat> the word is clear. And if we've already ironed out our conviction that this is God's word, it is inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative, then it says what it means, it means what it says, and we read what it says and we believe it. It's really pretty simple. Beaky said this, the scriptures give us the example of a great cloud of witnesses who are urging us to persevere in the race set before us, citing Hebrews 12.1. Yes, dear congregation, this is the kind of hope and confidence we need to endure whatever God delivers. Is God in control of this world or not? We it's strange, isn't it? How we sometimes will speak of, well, boy, Mother Nature must be mad now. Look, get ready for another storm. Or we'll look at how bad things appear to be and we start to worry. As if somehow something has slipped out of God's hand. If God can hold us in his hand, according to Jesus, such that we are safe and secure in him. And none can take us out of it, according to Christ. Then why on earth should we worry about what's happening outside the realm of salvation? Why should we worry about what's going on in the world? Is God in control or not? Now, the scriptures describe God as being sovereign. That is, he's in control. And of course he is. He created it all. It's his. This is my father's world, we sometimes sing. God is in control. He owns it all. He's not worried. He's not getting ready for plan B. He's got it. He's deeply satisfied. And may I suggest that God is content. He's not, you know, drumming his fingers, wondering, what are these people going to do? He knows it all. The Bible says he's declared the end from the beginning. If he's declared the end from the beginning, he knows exactly what's going to happen eons before it happens. He's not worried. Neither should we be. In 1609, William Perkins said this. Now, this is old speak, and so it's a little little awkward by the way we speak today. Howsoever believers be greatly cheered in their spiritual travel by the gracious promises which God in Christ hath made unto them. Yet this their joy is much increased by the view of those that have gone before them in the way of faith. We look to those believers before us 
and we see the things that they endured. They stood strong in the Lord, confident in the same God, the same scriptures, the same spirit as we have today. And they endured and they are now enjoying the great reward. Safe and secure in the arms of God. We have that awaiting us, dear church, don't we? There's nothing to worry about. Verse five, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. As in our day, the early church truly had its own struggles, such as we discover in Paul's addressing in Corinthians. It was a troubled young church. We can cut them a little slack, though. That was a first generation church. They didn't know how it's supposed to go. Much of it was new to them, but they were troubled. This is to our benefit, though. So we can find and apply God's inspired instructions on both what to avoid and what to pursue. You know, we've had this this old saying about those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Same thing with what these early churches struggled with. We can learn from them. Why do you suppose God recorded their failures, their struggles, their concerns? People are people regardless of which which millennia we live in. In this call for believers, Paul is speaking of unity in regards to matter of what matters on which the Bible is silent or which are no longer valid. It's disagreement about non-essential issues. that causes the conflict between strong and weak believers frequently. He therefore calls on us, MacArthur says, despite differing views to be in loving, spiritual and brotherly harmony. When we live this way, we glorify God by our obedience. We bless the family of God and we show the world our salvation in Christ. Recall first John first John. I'm sorry, John 13, not first John. John 1335 by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Verse six. Why this harmony, this one accord together, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A noteworthy benefit of loving the brothers and living peacefully together is not so much the the witness that we have, that we demonstrate to the world, or even the godly contentment that we just spoke of, treasures as these things are. But instead, it's fulfilling our primary purpose for living, which is this, glorifying God just as Jesus did. Why do you suppose Paul labors with the language in Christ as much as he does? Our identity is in Christ. Our confidence is in Christ. Our justification before the Father is in Christ. Our hope of eternal glory is in Christ. Our identity is completely in Christ. We glorify God in Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians 10.31, for example. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
This includes everything. Also, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul here is extolling the virtue of our one voice. That is, while we are in accord, we're of the same mind, we're of the same thinking. And this is possible only by the Spirit working that peace and unity within us. Nonetheless, we're to pursue it. Recall Philippians 2, chapter 1, tells us this, verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Just as the Trinity is in perfect unity and agreement eternally, as much as it rests within us, we're to demonstrate the same thing here, to be of one mind. Isn't that partly what a statement of faith or a confession of faith is, is intended to help do? It's distilling, it's summarizing our basic fundamental convictions, those areas on which we're not willing to, to yield an inch. Because we believe that they are part and parcel of the gospel. We can disagree and we can, we can vary on any number of things. Do we have chairs or pews? Do we use a screen or a hymnal? Do we, do we have a suit and tie or not? Do we, do we have Sunday school or not? Do we do VBS or not? Do we do dinner on the grounds? I don't know what we call it in Missouri. That's how it is in Mississippi. We can disagree on any number of things and we're not compromising God's word. But when we begin talking about the scripture, well, remember the Jesus seminar years ago, they started going through scripture and they started voting on whether or not the miracles of Christ, for example, could really have happened. And they'd have a different marble for each of the things they'd put in there and they'd finally count them in the end and decide. And they, they determined that these miracles were just completely impossible. He couldn't possibly have done it. They may be principles, but cut that out. And it's messed up. But this is their conclusion. Is this God's word or not? We have to decide because if we take any part of scripture and subject that to our fallen human reasoning and say, well, we can't trust. We're not sure about that. Is Genesis one history or is that poetry? The conclusion to that is significant. Jesus himself spoke of Genesis 1 as though it's history. Was he confused? We have to determine what is it. We read it according to genre. Genesis reads and is, in fact, a historical narrative. Jesus seemed to think there's a historical Adam. So should we. I'm going to side with Christ and not some seminar. We have to determine where we land on these things. We, we pursue it relentlessly. Our thinking must be in agreement on these essentials of the faith. Thinking this way is satisfying and it promotes unity among brothers. Shouldn't we pursue this relentlessly? God grant it. Which matters are the hills to die on? I suppose is the question. If we're talking about biblical doctrine over matters, absolutely. Let's dig in those proverbial hills. 
Because it's God's word. It's non-negotiable. But if we're talking about what we're sitting on on Sunday morning, who cares? We may prefer things, but that's not the hill to die on. In calling us to glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is emphasizing Jesus' deity. He's not an adopted son like we are, but the promised Messiah, Christ and Lord. Proverbs 23, 7 tells us that as a man thinks, so is he. Considering this, notice Ephesians 1, 15, what, what Paul is presenting to us is <laughs> what to think. 1, 15, he says this. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's something to think on. As a man thinks, so is he. We are one in Christ, reconciled to God the Father because of Jesus Christ himself, and we are safe and secure in him because of his spirit. He is reconciling his people to himself. For our minds to be consumed with this thinking is for us to think maturely and spiritually, such as we're considering in verse 1. Verse 7, the implication. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Taking all that Paul has presented to us in our text, this is the natural implication of that kind of thinking and living gospel transformed lives, welcoming one another. And this is more than just a simple handshake at the door. Welcome, brother. Glad to have you. Here's a bulletin. That's good and fitting, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Ever been the visitor in a church and in a new church and you show up, you don't know anybody from Adam's cat and you're looking around wondering, where do I go? What do I do? No one's really saying anything to you. Kind of that awkward moment. Where do I sit? Or is this your pew? Sorry, brother. You know, as in Baptist churches, we'll talk about, I'm welcome, brother. Glad to have you. I'm sorry. That's you're sitting in my pew. It's an in-house joke. Going somewhere new and not feeling particularly welcome. And nobody's really going out of their way to make it happen. Just a small Example. How is it that we welcome one another as freely and warmly as Jesus Christ himself welcomed you into his family? Do we go out of our way? We are co-heirs with him unto an indescribable inheritance. Second Corinthians 2 9 tells us what no eye has seen, no ear heard and or the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. An indescribable inheritance we've been welcomed to in Christ. How can we demonstrate the same kind of welcome to other believers coming in? We are to be and remain a warm, welcoming, hospitable, ministering congregation in the truth. The basis for unity. Our unity is not simply just our agreeing 
to disagree or agreeing to not fight. Our unity is is based on the truth. Jesus himself and his word. His purposes and our edification, each one blessing one another with spiritual gifting. We honor the God and Lord who made and called us. And we so fulfilled the great commission or the great commands of Matthew 22. Christ received us as sinners to the glory of God's grace. So we ought to open heartedly receive imperfect saints. Let's not expect more of one another than we do of ourselves. We truly are works in progress, dear brothers. God is patient with us. Let's be patient and long-suffering with each other. We'll be perfect in glory. Recall the benediction of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Is that a description of this fellowship's attitude to one another? I believe it is. Wouldn't you have it to be that way anyway? You'll recall Numbers 6, 24 and 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, you've been kind and merciful and gracious, loving, long-suffering toward us. And we are grateful. Thank you for the great love with which you have loved us in Christ and for your Holy Spirit to indwell us, to teach us, to tame us, to grow us up, mature us, and for the sweet spirit that he brings. Father, I pray for this congregation, for wisdom, and for discernment, patience, that you would send your servant, not of their choosing, but of yours, to minister, to encourage, to teach, to preach, to pray for, to fellowship with, to mourn with, to encourage, and to prepare for that great and final day that we, we all in Christ long for. Forgive us, Father, for having substituted you for lesser things. Work your grace and mercy in us to mature us into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. To the praise of your glory and for our great joy. Lord, warm our affections for you and so for each other. That we would be faithful and true as we await that great and final day. That we would be good stewards of the days that you give us. In wellness and in sickness, true to you, faithful guardians and stewards of the trust that you've given us in the scriptures. We would handle it rightly, look to it gladly and defend it vigorously. That you would be honored in what you see and hear and observe in us. Lord, might you bless this congregation richly for their edification and their joy. Grant a holy sorrow over sin and a ready willingness to confess and repent of it and to receive the the joy of forgiveness and restoration that you have. 
Lord, restore the joy of your salvation. Joy unspeakable and full of glory for Christ's sake. Amen.